Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would move powerfully in this time through your word. We pray that uh, this would not be merely a routine that we uh, participate in on a weekly basis to sit maybe a little too long listening to your word and thoughts about it, but as a sacred, solemn trust that you have given us to gather as your people and listen to your word. Would you pray that for yourselves now, if you're willing, with the person you came with or by yourself, that that the Lord would make this time uh, set apart, in a sense, to, to sanctify this time in your mind and in your heart right now. And we pray, Father, that uh, you would encourage us that we would understand how it is that you committed yourself to bless your people as we look at an Old Testament prophet, as we consider the way that you dealt with the children of Israel. I pray that we would be encouraged. We wouldn't leave uh, falling prey to the enemy's trap of thinking that your yoke is heavy. Help us understand that your yoke is and your burden is light. Would you pray that for yourselves, that the Lord would give you a special sense of his, his encouraging truth. And Father, we pray against distractions, as many as there are in our lives outside this room and on our devices that we bring in here with us and the cares and concerns in our minds. Help us set all of them aside and listen to the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The year is 520 B.C. It's late August, and harvest season has been over for some time. And speaking of the harvest, it's been particularly disappointing, especially this year. While planting season began with some promise, the results were minuscule. The world abroad is in turmoil. Darius, the grandson of Cyrus the Great, has only been in power for about two years, And he has not fully established himself, really. So the stability of the whole Persian Empire is in question, as some are not so happy with how Darius came to power. Eighteen years ago, though, Cyrus the Great made a proclamation. He gave full permission and funding for you and your families to return to your ancient homeland, and even to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the temple. What great news! When you arrived, though, you found that Jerusalem was so desolate that no people and not even animals lived there. But you began, in short order, rebuilding the temple. The altar was rebuilt first so that sacrifices could be made. And then the foundation of the temple was laid. This took about two years. But... The joy was mixed with sorrow as you began to realize this new temple will in no way be as big or as impressive or as beautiful as Solomon's temple. For about four years, the rebuilding continued, but you began to encounter much opposition. People who did not want to see Judah and Jerusalem reestablished even wrote to the son of King Cyrus after he took power tattletailing on you. And because the, scene, the king sent back a letter telling you to halt the work, the work did halt. And your enemies were gleeful to see it come to a grinding halt. 
All the work on the temple came to a full stop, and the project was left untouched for 10 years. In those 10 years, you decided to focus on getting your life back together. This plan has not gone well. In those 10 years, you seem very little nearer to your goal of establishing yourselves in the land. For a total of 18 years in the land, you don't have much to show for it. Life is very hard. And your opponents and enemies, however, seem to grow stronger. And you have no idea how this new King Darius will treat you. And then, in the middle of this struggle and time of desperation, along comes a man of insignificant origin named Haggai with a clear and direct and stinging rebuke. And he says, it's from the Lord himself. Open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord, these people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Before we get into an explanation of the text, let me ask you this. How would you respond? I'm not the best storyteller, nor do I expect in that short time in the beginning for you to understand all the details of the return from exile or to have all of the the pieces fit together, the for the time from the exile to the return. But hopefully you have a sense of the the precarious situation that the people were in. Try to imagine yourself in that setting and then imagine that hearing this stinging rebuke from a self-professed prophet of obscure origin. Would it feel nice? Would it feel encouraging? Would it feel compassionate and understanding? You might say something like this. Hey, Haggai, whoever you are, of course it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. We can barely survive. We are not like Solomon with all his riches building the first temple. We've been in a bad way this whole time and we can barely get food on the table. We have no money And this winter is going to be very bad because of the poor harvest. And ten years ago, the old king commanded us to stop. Of course it's not time. What would your response be? Before we get into more explanation, I do want to say a few things about the rulers mentioned here. Zerubbabel and Joshua. These were the ones who were in all likelihood in charge when the first exiles returned 18 years ago. Before Haggai began his prophetic ministry. And what's significant about both of them, uh, there's a lot we could say perhaps, but what is mainly significant for our purposes is that they were both duly appointed. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, was in fact in the line of David. He's a Davidite. And Joshua, the high priest, was indeed able to trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron. He's he's legit. They're they're both real and duly appointed. We, We have to understand the significance of this for the returning exiles. There would have been a sense, a tone of hope and anticipation. We have a real Levite to be high priest. And we have a real true blood Davidite to rule over us. Sure, he's only allowed to be the governor by the king of Persia. He's not in full power. But but just consider all the promises of God regarding these two families. 
All the blessing that God promised to come through the line of Aaron and the line of David. How much excitement would you have had? But even though there would have been all of that excitement in the beginning, and maybe anticipation for something big in the restoration of the land, fast forward 18 years, and things are just downright bad. We'll see more of that in a bit. A few things to say about the prophet Other than his message and his name, we know relatively nothing about him. We don't know where he's from. He could be a returning exile. He could have come back into the land 18 years ago or at some point in between. He could have been one of the poor people left in the land to live there after the exile. We don't know. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know what tribe he's from. We don't even know his hometown. All we know is his message and his name. And not even his name gives us many clues. Anything that you can find in a study Bible or a commentary is just a best guess type of situation. And this is instructive for us because it shows us there's kind of a, a sense of timelessness to his message. It's not that there's any part of your Bible that isn't timeless, but the Holy Spirit providentially ordained that we would know nothing about this guy. Sort of like the the author of Hebrews, right? We don't necessarily know who it was. We don't know who the audience was. It just kind of plops down in your lap there in the Bible. Here it is. And that timelessness, that sense of timelessness is true of Haggai as well. He's obscure. He, He can't, at least as far as the text is concerned, he doesn't attach himself to anyone significant. So when he showed up and started prophesying, the only thing that people had to go off was his message. And that's how the word comes to you, typically. How it should come to you. You shouldn't necessarily look at the credentials of the person who's speaking. You should test it by whether or not it is legitimately from the Lord. And so this first word, the structure of Haggai is interesting. I won't get into all the details, but it's set apart by these different words. The word comes by the hand of Haggai, and it's split into different pieces. And there's three of those in this first chapter. And the first one is simply this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's the first word. And it begins with this statement, these people. This immediately should signal to us, and was certainly understood by the first hearers, uh, to, to indicate that God is not happy. Things aren't right. Had God wanted to only be reassuring and encouraging, what what would he have said here to begin his word? My people. My people. But he doesn't say that. He begins it with a cold, detached statement, these people. Have you, ever, uh, have you ever been in a situation where things were really hard and really tough, and then, then in the midst of that difficulty, someone comes and gives you a rebuke? And the statement we like to say is, don't kick me while I'm down. That's essentially what the Lord does here. Things are not going well, and he begins his word through the prophet, these people He lets the people know that things are not well, and he is not pleased with their deeds or with how they've conducted themselves. And I don't want you to use this as an excuse in your relationships to be a jerk and lack patience and gentleness. In fact, God is more merciful and more patient with his people than you will ever be in your entire life, no matter how mature you are. And what we'll see in a little bit, it is out of his desire to bless them that he's saying this word. So his sternness, his rebuke, is is birthed from graciousness and mercy. These people say. So God begins his rebuke by quoting them. And what is it they say? These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house 
of the Lord. There's a little bit of a textual issue here. Some translators take it one way. There's actually in Hebrew two, two mentions of the word time. So a, a literal rendering would be something like, these people say the time is not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so you have to make a decision. Where is the quotation? Or is it a quotation at all directly? And one commentator said it this way. I think this is what's going on in the text. Uh, the time has not come. He says that that's the quotation. So, so if you're looking at your Bible, the quotation probably ends after at the end of verse 2. But I think the quotation is just simply that. The time has not come. Here's how it sounds in Hebrew. Lo et bo. It's a slogan. It sounds nice and pithy when you put it together. So here's how the commentator said it. The rest of the verse is not part of the quotation, but is the Lord's explanation of what the people meant by this use of the word time. The quoted words probably formed a populist slogan that epitomized why the temple should not yet be rebuilt. It's like a slogan, uh, uh, four more years, or, or no peace, no, or no justice, no peace, or just do it. it. It sounds pithy and nice when you put it together, low at bow. It's not time. For 10 years, the foundation of the temple just sat there. In the view of everyone, if you lived in Jerusalem, you could look up the hill and see the slab. There's the altar to the side. That's all it is. It's just a slab, unfinished slab at that. And there's the altar and maybe there's some construction materials around. Have you ever seen an abandoned construction project? How messy it is? Maybe in your own homes, you've, you've started some project in a side room or, or upgrading your kitchen or a bathroom, and it's just, it's not the time, or you don't have the time. And so the construction materials just sit there in that jumbled cacophony of disorder. So just like we do, we look at that mess of all the construction materials and unfinished works and hopes and dreams and aspirations that are represented in those construction materials. And we say, ah, it's just not the time. Parents, have you ever told your children, I feel like a lot of parenting is this issue of time and place. Now is not the time. Something along those lines. And maybe the people were, were riffing on an idea even from Ecclesiastes. There's a time to scatter stones and a time to, to bring them back. Maybe now is the time where we just don't do anything. There's a time for everything under the sun. Now is not the time. So this rebuke is essentially, hey, it's the Lord God here, the Lord of hosts. That's an interesting slogan you have. It's not time. Not time to build the house of the Lord. Then we get the second word. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? It says then, and it doesn't include another date. All through the prophet Haggai, we have dates designated when things happen. And the fact that this, this second word, the word comes again to, the, to Haggai the prophet, indicates, I think, that it is happening on the same day. So I, I think what is happening is he, the, the prophet receives the short, simple rebuke, the, what's in verses 1 and 2, and he goes to, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, and he, he delivers it. You say it is not time, time to rebuild the house of the Lord, lo et bo. And then as he's giving it, or maybe after he said it, and that could be a summary, the word of the Lord comes to him again. Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Can someone say, ouch, the Lord, through the personality and the speech skills of Haggai, employs a very common rhetorical tactic that the prophets use. You say this, while over here this is happening. You're doing this, 
while this over here is happening. Hypocrisy is something that the prophets call out over and over and over. Just read Jeremiah and Isaiah. So the temple is just this unfinished slab, and you've got paneled houses. And this word paneled, it could mean something like roofed. It it doesn't necessarily have to mean a super luxury. It, It could mean walls being covered with nicer wood or something like that. Uh, could be indicated. It doesn't mean gilded. So the Lord asks, you really think it's not time? I've seen how nice your houses are. They have roofs. While my house is a slab on top of the hill. It's an embarrassment. The glory of God And the proper worship of God expressed in God's very own house has been neglected by His own people while the majority of their time and what little money they are able to earn goes to building their house and securing their future. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This is actually the central command of the first two words from the Lord. It happens on the same day. What what he's saying is, think about what you're doing. Hit the pause button and think hard about this contrast. Consider carefully what's going on. Stop with your busyness and scrambling about to make your houses better and your slogans and whatever else and compare your pattern of life to the pattern of life that aligns with the central priority of God and His house in your life. That that is what he's saying. And literally it could be phrased like this. Place your heart on your ways. Set your heart to consider what it is that you're doing. God is not impressed with verbal affirmation of His significance. Oh yes, the Lord is most important. The Lord's first in my life. Nor is the Lord satisfied with private or individualistic versions of devotion to Him. You could have still been a faithful Jew. I mean, the altar is there. You could have brought your sacrifices. There's there's a Levitical priesthood functioning. It's just a slab, but you could have brought your stuff. You could have brought your tithes in. You could do all that. You could have said something like, well, what can I, as an individual person, do to change the situation about the house of God? Why is God not satisfied with with individualism in our devotion and verbal affirmation, because He doesn't just want you to make Him first. He wants you to show that He is first in your life by building His house first and having it take priority in your life. That's what He's saying to the people. Verse 6, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you, have, you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The Lord acknowledges their difficult situation. He makes no qualms about it. I've known some people who've had some very hard lives. They've been through a whole lot. And this description, if you think hard about what he's saying and how desperate they were, it's worse than almost anyone I've ever met, even from a third world country. If you just really marinate in the, in the severity of these words in verse 6. The wording is choppy in Hebrew, but it's, it's very direct. It, it would have sounded something like this, literally. You've begun to plant more but to harvest little, to eat, but never full, to drink, but with no delight, to clothe, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns them to put him into a punctured bag. The Lord is, the where, uh, is aware. The Lord sees. The Lord knows. 
But the reason he says this is not just to tell them, hey, I know it's hard, but could you please take the spare time that you have and your spare money and spend them on my house instead of buying nice things for your house? I mean, just until I have a roof. Please? No, not at all. He is telling them in direct rhythmic language. And, and, and he's letting them know that he understands what they're going through because he's the one behind it. He's the one doing it. We're going to see that here in a few verses. The issues are, in fact, connected. Their neglect of the house of God is connected, in fact, to their futility. This is the startling claim of the prophet Haggai. They thought they were completely separate realities. Over here we have the project of rebuilding God's house, and over here we have our financial situation and the, the, the depletion of our crops and the futility that we're facing in our lives. And the prophet says, by the inspiration of the Lord, they're connected. And it's a shame that it's come to this point for the people. And we will see explicitly why they're connected when we get to verses 9 through 11. But for now, know that this is why God is saying these things in verse 6. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is a continuation of the second word. Consider your ways. He says it again. This is a repetition of the central command and summons of the text. So he's saying, in case you missed it, I really want you to sit and think hard about your life. Devote yourself to a thorough investigation of your life. Dear Christian, the unexamined life is not worth living. What will it take for the Lord to alert you to your need to step back and do an end-to-end inspection of your life? What will it take for the Lord to finally convince you to be willing to put it all on the table and have no sacred cows, but have the boldness to blow everything up and reorder and reorganize everything in your life and line it up with His central priority? And to show that by making his house a priority over your own. Will he have to make your life like verse 6? Verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And here we have the explicit command to build God's house. There's there's similar pattern here with what Solomon did. If you're familiar with the story, when, when David passed away and Solomon began to build the house, even though David had collected much of the resources there, Solomon had to send letters and, and get other kings from other places to send the materials in. So God is saying to the people, start doing that again. But what's most significant about this passage for our purposes is the why that the Lord attaches to it. And the two reasons he gives overlaps. He says that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. The point is this. I I was going to talk a long time about this, but you know how that goes. The Lord does not need your help. But the reason you exist is to make much of him. And the way his people make much of him is by living like he's as big a deal as he really is. That's the point. This is what it means to glorify God. And we are not left to our own thoughts and preferences to define what it means for us to glorify God. We in our culture have this very narrow, very incomplete unsatisfying understanding of glory is this idea of just like credit, right? So, so as long as you, at the end of the day, give credit to God, you're good. You can do everything just like the Gentiles do, live your life seeking the same things they do, and then at the end of the day say, it was because God gave me the strength to do it. That's not what it means to glorify God. You, I mean, sure, start there, whatever. But 
aligning your priorities and the purposes of your life and what you're seeking, that's what it means to glorify God when God is of central significance in your life. It can't just be credit. You know, athletes say that. You know, they live their life seeking all sorts of things and spending their money on all sorts of things and then they're interviewed and they think that they're glorifying God by just saying thank you to God at the end of the game. That's not what it means to live your life for the glory of God. And the point of Haggai's stinging rebuke is this. It does not matter who you're worshiping in your heart or who you're giving credit to. It comes down to this, people. Whose house are you building? That's his rebuke. And I said earlier, it's a shame that it had to get to this point for the people. The delay for 10 years might have been uh, maybe God giving someone the chance to stand up and say that this is not right. Maybe he was giving 10 years a reprieve saying, hey, will, will anyone be like my servant David? Who, without any prompting or rebuke from a prophet, said, behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of my Lord in a tent. Who will be like David? Who will rise up for the pleasure and glory of God and say, this is not right. But for 10 years, no one did. And God had to send Haggai. Verses 9 through 11. You have looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. And now the mask comes off. What they thought was just life being hard, or living in a fallen world, or or just falling on hard times, turns out to be the direct involvement of God Himself. And understand, He does not bring these hardships on the people for just some general purpose of sanctification. Or discipline. That we can't figure out. You know, sufferings happen. Some people have good lives. Some people have hard lives. It's a mystery. We don't know. God's just sanctifying us in some general sense. That's not what the prophet is saying. It's a direct and, I would say, an unspeakably unpleasant one-to-one connection. These hardships are happening to you because my house is neglected. I blew it away. All that harvest you brought in. I brought the drought. I withheld the dew because my house lies neglected. You see, for us, the idea that God uses suffering to sanctify us, that makes sense. Hopefully that's not a new concept to you. The idea that God uses trials to help us loosen our grip on our idols, hopefully that's not such a strange concept to you. The idea that God uses difficulty in our lives to make us glorify Him more. That's very simple. That's that's basic Christianity. But the idea here is that God intentionally, personally, and directly brings hardship and futility into the lives of His people when His house is not their priority. This, I would wager, is not something we think about much. We love to keep our spirituality in the broad and in the general. We don't want to get too specific for fear of maybe being legalistic or neglecting other important things. I worship God in my heart. I seek to have all my inward devotion right and have the right thoughts about God and the right theology. I've got it together. And for sure, it starts there. But that inner life of worship, that hidden devotion and love for God and neighbor... In the heart, if that's 
all you've got, that's just the beginning of what God wants from you and expects from you, his people. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, there's some good Bible names for you. And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared God. Haggai has been called one of the most successful prophets because the people actually listened to him. You go through all the prophets of the Old Testament, you have Uh, Nineveh listening to the voice of Jonah, but with the people of Israel, I can barely think of any prophet that they actually listened to. And this was quick. The indication, as we'll see in a second, is I I think it was basically the same day. They They were contrite. Their hearts were broken. They obeyed. And let me say this to you, believer. Anything that God brings you through in order to produce more repentance and sustained obedience in your life is mercy. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. There's an interesting consideration of this verse in the context of the the timeline. Every time a new important date comes along, uh, the prophet records the date. Day, month, and year. But here, uh, it's at the end. It's in verse 15. And there, there's, a, there's a time difference here. And I won't get into all the details, but the, what does it mean that they, be, they obeyed? Right? Because it says in verse 15 that, that they started rebuilding. And it was about 23 days later, something like that. The 24th day, so depending on when it came on the fourth day, 23 days later. So what does it mean that they obeyed before they started rebuilding? I think what's going on is that they obeyed the central exhortation of the first two words. And that is, consider your ways. They were broken. They were contrite. And they began to think upon what they had done. The shift at the heart level is what we so desperately need. And distraction of every kind is the enemy of brokenness when hearing the word of God. Anything that you let invade your thoughts, notifications or otherwise that draw your attention away from what God is saying, that is the enemy of getting to the place of contrition and brokenness. You can't consider your ways when you're thinking about 10,000 other things. I think that is this spirit of contrition and listening and obeying expressed in humble willingness to consider their ways that prompts the third message on the same day. They began fearing the Lord again. They awoke to the startling reality of the magnitude of God and the rights that He possesses in His grandeur over all creation like we read in Psalm 8. They began fearing him again and feeling and thinking about him rightly. What have we done? The fear of their opponents and the king and the fear of loss, the fear of discomfort and the fear of not being able to set up a better life for their children and the fear of many other things that we fear too had been allowed to fester and become greater in their heart than the fear of the Lord. That's what had happened. But because they came to this point, because their hearts were contrite and they began considering their ways when in the, expressed in the prophet's statement that they feared the Lord, God responds with perhaps the most comforting thing that God could say In that moment. And this is the third word from the Lord. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Do you want to be reassured of God's presence? Do you want to be reassured of your security in His love? Do you want a sense of the permanence of the covenant between you and Him? 
then fear Him. Think and feel and act in a way that makes sense in view of who He is and His rights over you and what He has done for you. And commit yourself to build His house as your prime directive, even over your own. This is how David says it in Psalm 25. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. Psalm 103.11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. And in Mary's song that she sings in Luke chapter 1, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. When we do not regard God as God, when we de-God God, when we de-glory God in our hearts and in our conducts, it is impossible to feel near to him. And we cut ourselves off from a sense of his love and the sense of our union with him in Christ. So God reassures them as they begin to obey the word of the Lord to consider their ways. So in contrast, in the beginning, he says, these people. And then because they obey, he sends his word by the prophet to say, I'm with you. It's almost like the promise that God gives to Moses, I'll be with you. Moses says, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. And God promises him, I'll be with you. And this is one of the most comforting promises of Jesus, is it not? And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Verse 13. Then Haggai, we already read, I'm sorry, verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So what I think is happening here is some overlapping obedience, if you will. So right at the beginning, when they hear the, ver- the message of the Lord from the prophet, they begin to consider their ways, and then they start making plans. And they start rearranging their schedules. And they start sending letters to people, obeying what he said, send, go to the mountains and bring wood. And they start doing all these things. And finally, after 23 days have passed, they, they converge on the Temple Mount and start rebuilding the temple. So we see obedience to the third imperative consider your ways, consider your ways, build my house. That's how it flows. What's important for our purposes is that the Spirit himself stirs up Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people so that they come together to build the temple. The Spirit is the driving force behind all the building of God's house. You you could say, it's fair to say that the Spirit began this work by giving the word to Haggai. The Spirit is at work in all of it. The Spirit sends, moves in Haggai's heart and sends him to speak. And the Spirit is at work in the hearts of the people to bring brokenness, to consider their ways and fearing the Lord. But when Haggai himself wants to underscore and mention the noticeable and surprising work of the Spirit, he points to his work of stirring up obedience to the work. You want to be spiritual? Fear the Lord. You want to experience an outpouring of the Spirit's help and power? Then to riff on the Apostle Paul, strive to excel in building up God's house. And now we have to ask the question, how does this apply? I hope you see that I've set a trap for you or more appropriately, that the Bible has. And I hope you can see that I've earned the right by my exegesis and explanation of the text, the right to say to you these following things. To spring the trap, we need to ask two questions in order. And the second one will answer the first. The first one is this. Does this Old Testament text apply to us today? 
the objection would be basically this. This is a command to God's old covenant people. We're under a different covenant now. Pastor, didn't you just preach Hebrews? Exactly. But let's answer that question. Does this apply to us today by asking another question? Is there a house of God that we have new covenant commands to build? Let me ask it again. Is there such a thing called the house of God that we are in fact commanded to build in the New Testament? Well, I'm glad you asked. What is the temple, house, or building of God? What is the final form of it? What is the most perfect representation or reality of that idea in the Bible? It's definitely not the temple. Hebrews 3, 6, And we are His house. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, And you are God's field, God's building. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I will say this. The body of Christ in both senses is the final temple of God. I wish we had more time to discuss that. And if you dispute that, just come back tonight at 4.30 and we can discuss it. Have a good long discussion about it. But let me say it again. The body of Christ in both senses is the final temple of God. So let's ask the second part of the question. Are we commanded to build it? Some might object. Even in Hebrews 3, pastor, it says the builder of all things is God. And Jesus himself says, I will build my church. Who am I or how dare you presume that you could build God's house? We've already mentioned 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, perhaps the most clear passage on this subject. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's not God who builds his house directly, just in a spiritual sense. It is God who builds his church through the pieces and parts that he has equipped the church with. You. Jude 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So, dear Christian, yes, Haggai is for you. That's the trap. You say it is not time, lo et bow, time to build the household of God. Is it indeed time for you to live lives focused on other things while the household of God lies neglected and deteriorating? It's an embarrassment. Consider your ways. Strive to excel in building the house of your God. If you listen and repent and obey, God will be with you. I want to give a caution before we move to our final points. If you think that the point of this passage is merely to say, put God first, you've missed the whole point. Or I've not done my job. Hopefully it is clear. But let me say it again. God is saying this to you by the prophet Haggai. The way I demand that you show that I am first in your life is to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Simon Peter, do you love me? 
feed my sheep. Same idea. A few final points. I hope you can see what is happening in the life of our church, that there are so many uncanny providences happening. Brother Paul preached on Matthew 6 last Sunday. I didn't tell him to do that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you see the parallel? We were reading 1 Corinthians 3 in our service last Sunday and 1 Corinthians 4 this Sunday. That wasn't my schedule that I set for the church. That wasn't in view of Haggai. Second point of clarification, or second final point. This, 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 as we're closing, you could say these are application or whatever. It's not this building. Okay? Get that out of your head forever. The physical building of the church is not the house of God. Ever. If you want an analogy for what this building could be, have you, if you've ever been to a major construction site, you, you'll see that there's maybe a tent set up outside the construction site, or maybe a, a portable building that's set up there for the people to meet and go over the blueprints and all that and then go and work. That's what this building might be in the analogy. But this is not the house of God. You are God's house. And the main counterpoint, then, may not be your physical house. The point of the text is anything. If you've set anything above the priority of God's house, brother and sister in Christ, this applies. And I I say that especially for you young people in here. You may be listening to me and you're like, well, I don't have a house that I'm prioritizing over the house of God. But you can prioritize all sorts of other things over the house of God if you're a very young Christian. Sports, your Minecraft server, whatever it is. Is it time for those things to be paneled and nice and all finished out while my house lies in ruins, declares the Lord? Think about these things. Consider your ways. Is God your God? To follow this analogy of a construction project, the gospel itself would be the blueprints. This is why we must familiarize ourselves with the gospel. It's no other way that we are given to build the house of God than by the gospel itself. And just in case you don't know what that is, Christ, and I'm going to say it in terms of this idea of God's house, that in the body of Christ, God has prepared for us a meeting place with Him. Christ Himself is the temple. In the death of Jesus, our sins are taken out of the equation so that we can draw near to God and have fellowship with Him and be in His presence in His temple, even as we ourselves are the building blocks of His temple. It's overlapping analogies. And so if you have not been reconciled to God in the person of Jesus, then you're outside the temple. You're outside the camp. So be reconciled to God. Repent of sin and believe in Jesus. He offers you terms of peace. He reconciles you to himself. Those are the blueprints for this house. This is what we're building. We're exalting Christ to the praise of his glory. The vision and the revelation to John is all these people surrounding the throne, praising him. Worthy are you who was slain to receive power and glory and honor forever and ever. That's what we're trying to build. Those are the blueprints. And might I say that the one another commands are your tools. To continue with this analogy. This is why we have a church covenant. And why it's phrased and written exactly like it is. Because we've got the blueprint for how we're to build the house of God. It's the gospel. And the tools for how we're to go and obey those blueprints. And make it happen and build God's house in the lives of each other. Are the one another commands. As the body, as each part is doing its part. Builds itself up in love. That's your job. That's my job. You are a worker. You're a fellow workman in the building of God's very house. 
This is what we're trying to do when we come together. It's not just a service. It's construction. Building. What are you building when you come here? Here's a helpful paradigm to help you think through these things. If everyone did what I do when we gather as a church, what would our church be like? If everyone did what I do when we come together, what would our church be like? Would there be much encouraging going on? Would there be much hospitality going on? Would there be much mutual exhortation and teaching going on? If everyone did what I do when we come together as a church, what would our church be like? I also want to say this. Yes, divine promises and blessings are attached to these commands. The passage we heard from last week. And all these things will be added to you. Do we trust God? That when we make his house the priority, his kingdom the priority in our lives, that he will add to us the essential things for life? Do we trust that? Or do we distrust him and put those things the priority? Maybe, maybe the house of God and the kingdom of God a very, very close second, but still those things first. Jesus says, not even a person who gives a cup of water to one of my disciples because he is a disciple will, will lose his reward. If you do anything for Christ, for building his house and his kingdom, you will by no means lose your reward. But no, this does not mean that you will not encounter hardship or have opponents. In the context, even after they begin rebuilding the temple, they get opposition again. They write to the king. They got, they got to do an archive search to make sure it's legal for them to rebuild the temple. You're going to receive all kinds of opposition and all sorts of hardship seeking to build God's house. That's Jesus' promise. He will, not, will he not receive houses and lands and all this stuff with persecutions in this life and in the next eternal life? Guaranteed. But I, I want to encourage you in this way, and I hope you can see this. What else are you going to, going to show for your life on the final day? What, what are you going to show for your life? What, what will your life amount to? What do you get to bring with you? If you spend your life building on God's house, quite a bit. That whole passage about whatever a person builds on the foundation, it's talking about this very same thing. It's not talking about your personal life's building over here because it's referring to one foundation, which is Christ. It's your part to play in building your specific area of God's house. Also, Private inner devotion to God, if it does not result in building up the body of Christ, is worthless. Private devotion, inner worship, whatever you want to call that, if it does not result in building up the body of Christ, is worthless. That's kind of why we have the book of James. And let me encourage you this way. What greater privilege could there be than to build the house of God? I want you to test your emotions right now. What if by some crazy turn of, of political winds, some person started rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount, and you were invited to, to be at the groundbreaking? Would that cause more excitement in your heart than an opportunity to encourage your brother and sister in Christ? How you answer that question tells a lot about you and how you understand the covenants. The house that will be there, the holy place, the temple, will be your brothers and sisters in Christ united in the person of Jesus. That is God's house. Your privilege. God doesn't need you. He has given you the blueprints and the tools and full rights of access to his whole building that he is building that will be there and says, get to work and we do other stuff. 
with our lives, what greater privilege could there be than to build that eternal house of God in the lives of your brothers and sisters? And lastly, go to where Jesus is. You want to be near to your Messiah. You want to know him and to share with his life and and to sense and to know his love for you. Do you know where Jesus is and what he's up to? He's building his church. And the invitation is right there for you. Join him. Come alongside him. He's there. He's working hard. He's working around the clock to build his church. And you, brother or sister in Christ, have an open invitation even today, even in our conversations following this service, to build the house of God. Go to where Christ is. Join him in the work and build his house. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great privilege, the qualification, the gifting, the talents, the resources, and the time, and everything else that you've given us to seek first the kingdom of God. Thank you for your great and precious promises that you will take care of us as we do so. Help us reorder our lives and consider our ways for your glory. For the fame of your Son, Jesus. Amen.